You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARKU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So while we've been good at defining a good idea and doing all of the analysis on, you know, getting that idea approved, uh, even in the public sector space where a lot of it's driven legislatively, constituent, you know, driven elements, um, then it goes into execution and nothing's changed. Nothing, Nothing has really changed in that context. And so Fail Fast came out and saying, look, if, if things are going to go, rather than dragging it on, just, you know, terminate the project before it really gets too bad. And I understand that from a risk standpoint, but the reality is it is utterly demoralizing to your workforce to do that, number one. Number two, it is an utter waste of time and resource. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. Measuring execution capability is really a missing metric in modern management practice. Biases, politics, gut instinct, we use these to fill the void when we lack the right data. And it's time to bring strategic decision-making into the 21st century. And my guest today, Alex Castro, has really done that. He's developed the readiness score, a data-driven measurement for determining an organization's execution capability or readiness for each strategic initiative it's considering. Using his approach, leaders can effectively evaluate potential acquisitions, new product concepts, new market expansions, and back office optimizations by separating ideas that will actually work for them from those that are only great in theory. And he's laid out this readiness score in a new book he's written, Measure, Execute, and Win. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the book as well as what goes into this readiness score and how government organizations can leverage it to optimize their operations. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, really appreciate it. Before we jump into the questions around data, I, I've taken a look at, at your background a little bit and saw we have a, a couple similar attributes. One, we were both college athletes. I saw you were a rower at Northeastern. Um, I'm, yep. far, I'm far from a rower. Uh, I, have a, <laughs> I, have, I have a runner's frame, but I played, I played soccer in college, so hopefully we can toss some sports analogies in throughout our our conversation, but also I saw you have, you have two daughters. Is that right? I do. I do. Actually, one of them, uh, uh was a, uh, soccer player for university of Washington. Uh, the other oh, one is very actually, cool. uh, a rower, uh, at San Diego state. So yeah. Nice. So I have one daughter, I'm guessing now, I mean, I know now that she's much younger than yours. My daughter's two and a half. Um, any, any tips for a guy that has, um, probably some really challenging years ahead of him? <laughs> Um, you know, just, um, I think it's pretty straightforward stuff, just like being a a good leader in business. It's, you know, find ways to deliver empathy and, uh, remove obstacles for them and, um, you know, coach them along and, 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 uh, yeah, you know, help them reach their potential. You know, that's the thing I've, I, after having my daughter, I, I now vehemently agree that, every single, every single guy out there should have a daughter. 
it, it <laughs> it's amazing what what she teaches you i i have a seven-year-old son too and it's amazing the thing he teaches me but just having a daughter you, you take a look at the world completely different so it's just a really it's been a really cool experience i'm sure you've you felt the same way very much your your heart definitely becomes more open to the world around you um, definitely. for sure so so i'm gonna i, I want to talk about the book that you wrote a little bit measure execute win um, but before we jump into that and, and some of the other things I wanted to talk about today, you, you wrote an article, uh, recently in Forbes touching on uh, where the headline is why you can't hold on to millennial employees, despite your cool workplace. I think companies out there, uh, even the government starting to take a look at, at their culture and things like that, but they try to throw these cool perks out there. And we've had conversations on this show as well about what that next generation workforce looks like trying to. Uh, recruit and retain top talent, especially in government. But with this top of mind with leaders out there, especially with the great resignation, I mean, I think governments obviously struggle with this. What are some ways that organizations can recruit and retain that top talent within the next gen workforce? Well, I think that that you know you're you're looking at a generation of people, and you know I want to I want to preface this by saying that you know when you say. Um, a millennial or Gen Z generation, you've got to remember and, and almost take a step back to to provide context that that you know you would say that somebody's you know a African American or somebody's a Hispanic American or something to that effect. You, you know, it's like you can't lump um, everybody in singularly within the context of being a millennial or a Gen Z. So I just want to kind of throw that kind of foundational because it's not all and everything and, and those all encompassing pieces, but generationally, I think that there's, there's things that, you know, we have to recognize with the people coming into the workforce, you know, generally they have a lower level of self-esteem. Um, they want to be seen and, and be relevant to something, um, and they're brutally impatient about uh, the world around them, and and they want you know results right away. And then when you marry that into companies that you know largely have pre-COVID adopted a operating model that lives in almost this sort of venture capital mindset, where it's you know, almost throwing spaghetti on the wall kind of thing where you have a lot of different uh, ideas and opportunities going out, but, um, you know, it's fail fast, right? That can be very defeating to a younger culture that, you know, really wants to have, wants to see something through. They want to see something and, and be relevant and make an impact on things. And that's, you know, that's where a lot of that, that structure starts to conflict. And that article really talks about the fact that if you really want to retain and build the next generation workforce, you have to let them win. And you can't win if you're not really understanding what you're making decisions around. Like your decisions are, are deeply biased in certain directions or that you're pushing an agenda. And you can only have people, even veteran employees, go through so many cycles where projects are abandoned or they don't fulfill their whole promise to the point that they just eventually stop caring in some way and they start to disconnect from your purpose as a company. And so largely that article really talks about the fact that if you're really going to drive more connection and, and, and retention in, in, in the younger generation coming through, 
you have to be handing them the opportunity to be winners. And that's something that has has really struggled uh, pre-2020 in, in most operating cultures. That's really interesting because usually when I hear contextually the phrase fail fast, I, I hear it in a positive light, right? You're looking yeah, to- Yeah, I disagree with it wholeheartedly. Really? No, and, oh, yeah. and help me understand that because when we talk about fail fast, like the concept of fail fast, the idea obviously is you get into a project and you, you try to- you try to move through some of the layers that that are forcing you to fail, hopefully to get to that successful point. Show me, show me your side of this. I'm really curious. Yeah, for sure. So fail fast came about because of the complexity and the speed of market. And that's, that's only gotten more heightened, right? I, I think that 2020 really made a very clear show that we weren't ready. Like all that digital transformation, all of those projects, all those things that were going on, when the light switch needed to go on, they weren't there. And so a lot of executives have taken this attitude that, look, we can't cure the execution window, right? We, we've, we've been running this innovation engine. It's producing great ideas, 90, 80, 90% of which are really good ideas. People have really come up with some good stuff. But then it goes into execution. It's almost like taking that, that folder, that concept, tossing it over this wall into some project manager or product manager's hands and saying, go and be successful. And that's, you know, that hasn't gotten cured. So while we've been good at defining a good idea and doing all of the analysis on, you know, getting that idea approved, uh, even in the public sector space where a lot of it's driven legislatively, constituent, you know, driven elements, um, then it goes into execution and nothing's changed. Nothing, Nothing has really changed in that context. And so Fail Fast came out and saying, Look, if if things are going to go rather than dragging it on, just you know terminate the project before it really gets too bad. And I understand that from a risk standpoint, but the reality is it is utterly demoralizing to your workforce to do that. Number one, number two, it is an utter waste of time and resource. Number three, most of your people know where the problem is, and so as a result. Uh, could have identified where those things are. So, you know, in public sector, for example, we have clients that have used our REM score piece, which is what the book is about, really to understand where are the misalignments between capability and idea? And how do I correct those things so when I go to execution, I'm executing twice as fast at two-thirds the cost because I've removed these random elements. And so what I argue too is stop throwing away good ideas. Stop killing great opportunity or the ability to serve that uh, constituent base or the client base much better. Instead, focus on where is, there, where is the gap in alignment between what we need to do or want to do and our abilities to do that. And let's remove those misalignments or address them because they're driven by cognitive biases that we all have. And by engaging that process up front, we can now accelerate our time to market. We can see more things be successful. We can see more ideas come to life. But that, that fail fast model to me is just sort of like the, I have no other way to manage execution. So I'm just going to like 
kill a project as soon as it goes bad. And, and, you know, that way I don't, I'm not too entrenched in it. And I just don't, I just see that as, you know, just not a healthy way to move forward. So you touched about your, you're touching your book and want to kind of pick that up here. The book is measure, execute, win. First of all, I, I love the title and I love the inclusion of win. And yep. a lot of times we focus on what that process is and we forget what the reason for going through that process is. Ultimately, it's to win. Even in public sector, winning is is hitting certain milestones, being successful on a citizen deployment, those type of things. So you can absolutely win in that space. And the idea around the book is so simple, yet it, it's, so, it's so obvious, but it's the same time not something that's always done successfully. So I'm curious to know, what was the process for your book? Was there like an aha moment that you had say, I just need to get this down? Well, it's something that had come out of, you know, years and years of just ruminating over different opportunities. And really what it came down to is that, you know, again, there, the data is out there that basically shows you that execution is the problem area. It's not the ideas that are suffering. It's the ability to carry the ideas through. And unfortunately, what gets, what gets uh, misperceived is that the operations or the organization is capable of handling virtually anything that's thrown over the wall, right? Regardless of whether you're in public sector or in private sector. And the idea that you're going to course correct during projects is no longer viable. There is no second chance anymore. Even in public sector, there isn't that recovery time. Uh, and especially in today's you know, world where constituents are expecting immediate responsiveness uh, and are not tolerant of any kind of waiting and the fact that typically public sector initiatives take anywhere from one to five years to come to life, uh, technically, those two things mismatch, right? And, and the challenge is how do you connect need to execution in a way that's more effective? And it doesn't have to do with lack of capacity or capability as a whole, it's more the effect that people, process, and technology are aligned for a specific working model today. When you introduce the next iteration of what you want to do, let's say it's a new data system, a new licensing system, a new benefit system, whatever it may be, that you have to realign and understand that that next generation is going to create a gap in capability and you need to know where it is and by knowing where it is measuring that in a matter of days not weeks or months not through opinions and consulting engagements but through a metric and understanding where that is that and when you correct that that your success rate goes up exponentially and that means that you're going to see more winning happen in the context of successful initiatives moving forward which then provides great benefit to customers and constituents, great benefit to employees, great benefit and confidence to leaders, legislators, governors, um, you know, to to board members, you know, depending on what industry you're in. And so it, it's it's understanding that that it's that front end alignment that's throwing us off in, in terms of our execution uh, abilities. You mentioned based on a metric. I know you you've created this REM score. Help us understand that. What does this REM score mean? What is it evaluating? Um, what goes into it? Great question. Thank you. Um, 
the the thing that we came down to is saying that look you have to be able to quantify the the depth of gap in your readiness to move forward right rem score stands for readiness measurement score and it came out of 15 years of research on our part and it's supported by 25 years of behavioral economic theory that has been widely published and used so it's not as if we came out of this you know uh you know from you know some dark corner somewhere you, you know, what we did is we in essence took our knowledge base and used it to help connect the dots in behavioral economic theory and really understanding that decision bias is driving the misalignment of a lot of decisions uh, to move forward, to do certain things, um, whereby if you had taken the step to really harvest the insight inside of your entity, which what I tend to offer to a lot of, of folks, and hopefully you know the, the listeners here can relate to this, is that the answers are inside of your business today. And it's a matter of harvesting those quantifying them, scoring them in a way that makes sense and is actionable, and then moving forward. So that's really what what the impetus of it is. And so what we also figured out is that because of today's model, operating model, that work has to be done uh, in a matter of days, not weeks, not months. You need that information as fast as you can, because then you can you can run your corrective action to align idea to execution, which may take time to do, but that time then avoids that exercise in damage control, which most project managers understand to be project execution. What does it take to implement something like this? And I'm curious because some of the conversations we have here are around people in process, right? I, I'm a firm mm -hmm. believer that and, and a lot of companies and governments have made this mistake. You can't just throw technology at a problem. You have no. to, from the ground up, you have to build it with the right people, the right processes in place to be able to facilitate whatever the yield is. How do you implement the leveraging of a score like this into the culture of your organization? Really, it comes uh, at the early stages of uh, decision making. You know, especially in public sector, you really don't have a choice to necessarily implement a new inspection system or data gathering system. Um, and so, you know, really, it's more understanding where is the gap so that you can effectively uh, neutralize that misalignment. Uh, before you engage life cycle. And it's typically before you go to procurement. If you're going to buy a vendor to bring in to, to do the work or a piece of software, um, realistically, you need to understand as a business, as an entity, where is the gap in capability? And we develop 14 domains that are most principal to it, right? And those 14 domains really measure the risk around the implementation from the context that, you know, I, I often talk to, to technologists in public sector uh, about this very simple thing <laughs> that I call the sort of the goodwill hunting effect, right? And, and what I tend to, to wind up having is a conversation that, that focuses on it's not your fault. The technology that you're offering or your capacity as a technology entity or as a technologist is good. 
you're well-trained. You have the knowledge. It's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. There was nothing wrong with what, how, or when you applied your capability. It's not your fault. What it is, is that there are too many other factors that are far beyond your influence or control that are directly impacting your project. And because those are coming at you in, as blind spots, you're having to react to them because technology is not the problem. IT is not the problem. The challenge is that you have legislative and uh, executive branch decisions that are happening that are tend to be in the best interest of the constituency and the program has to adapt. And that adaptation pushes a program outside of its normal operating structure. And so now the technology has to adapt to that, but the program is either too busy or may not have the resources necessary to support it. And, and, and so we developed those 14 domains that really measure, 12 of which are non-technology focused, that really measure where those gaps exist so that you can correct them. I mean, how many times have you been in an effort where the program could not spare key subject matter experts to help define the need or articulate, you know, the business rules? You know, that doesn't just come out through osmosis, <laughs> yeah. right? That's a risk. Um you know, I've had countless engagements where we sit with subject matter experts and start to walk through workflows and to have them begin to define to us how each part of the, the system needs to work. And they can articulate the workflow, but they can't articulate the rules behind it. And now we have to go do business rules extraction out of, out of legacy code. You just set the project back three to six months, but you still have to deliver. And now that's an IT problem. So that's more where it comes from. So you, you mentioned blind spots too when we're when we're talking about these fourteen domains of measurement that you guys have defined. Mm -hmm. You obviously work with numerous organizations. What are some of the most common blind spots that you see that these these domains uncover? Uh, it, you know, I get to ask this question so often, and I wish I had a very simple answer. It's like, oh, really? Out of the fourteen, it's typically these three. <laughs> and there, I guess that was the case. You wouldn't have fourteen; you'd have three. So I get exactly, it. exactly. There just isn't consistency. You know, I think that there is this. There has been this misunderstanding in um, IT or project delivery that you can you can create this, you know, Frankenstein model of best practices that addresses every situational need for every project. And the reality is I put it into, and let's go to the sports context. I'm so glad you brought that up when we started chatting, is that the winner of the Super Bowl and you know, this year, 2021, by default under that thinking process should automatically be the winner of the Super Bowl in 2022. And that's not the case. Why? Because conditions change. Players' abilities change. Tactics change, situations change, and projects and business is no different. So just because you came off of a great and successful project has nothing to do with the next project. Past performance has no reflection on future outcome. And this has been said many, many times in many different contexts. 
But until that is fully embraced and understanding that each initiative is within its own right, its own initiative, the, the, the struggle will continue in the execution world. And it's until we really embrace the fact that each initiative in and of its own has its own challenges. And again, most of them are not technology challenges. Mm-hmm. That it's situational and you have to measure each initiative situationally and adapt to that situation or correct that situation so you can execute. What's another good example too, where you can't always anticipate what some of the things are that pop up, right? It is, it can be a a personal issue that affects some of the people on the team where maybe they were allowed or able to put in 12, 14 hour days on a certain project that hit the mark. And now in this next gap of time, that just isn't feasible. Well, that's not something that you've taken into consideration when you're taking a look at what delivery methods are. So it really comes back to the people, which is why it's so important. Well, and more importantly, yeah, absolutely. And more importantly, it's not the IT people, right? It's a lot it's, of business. It's a lot of the business, right? Because you know, you're looking at that project A that was wildly successful or had a great run was led by a different person that's currently leading this initiative. And maybe this person doesn't know how to manage or make decisions, right? Or the working unit that you have right now has a completely different cultural decision-making process than the governance model. And so that's going to conflict. Or they have some kind of cyclical process where they have seasonality involved in their level of effort. And so subject matter experts will not be available for a four-month period from here to here. Or, you know, the vision is not articulated terribly well. Or um, the initiative in and of itself is a deviation from the core mission or values of, of the department, but it's been thrust on them because of, you know, political will. And so... Those are the types of things that you have to metric out and you really have to understand the depth of impact of those things before you head ahead, you know, move ahead. I'm curious because it doesn't sound like it's an easy way to envelop those factors into, let's call it an equation when you're taking a look at this. So, so how, how do you go about doing that? How do you take a look at some of these, um, if you want to call it almost non-technical business issues in that grand context of everything? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So, you know, the, the, for us, what we developed is we, we developed a product that does it. Now, I want to separate the concept from the product, right? Like we just simply facilitated a way to do it more effectively, right? Um, the concept of itself is that you need to really take a holistic look at where your vulnerabilities are based on the biases that are typically enveloped or invoked to make decisions around um, uh, projects and how they move forward especially in the planning stages. So that's a fundamental that's regardless of how you, you move to the next step. Within our context, we use a, a product that we developed called RemScore that in essence gathers that data through a virtualized interview process that, that leverages what's called swarm intelligence modeling to shape uh, interviews virtually um, and ingest data from participants uh, that are identified for this effort um, and create a an overall uniform machine learning model that 
that allows us to really extrapolate the input, weight it, and push back where are the vulnerabilities and at what level of impact will they have within a, a project. And we do that within this platform in a matter of days. You know, Typically, it takes anywhere from two to five days to complete, which is something that usually from a manual consultant-driven engagement takes anywhere from as little as three weeks to typically around three months to do. Um, and so by providing a metric and a score around it, we give focus to where's, where do you really need to pour the resource in to do corrective action and take a little bit deeper dive that'll help you get that alignment. So, you know, we've tried to take some processes that takes, you know, again, weeks or months to do, shrink it to days. So then you can get into that action space and, and be more ready to, to engage uh, the effort. So it's interesting. You you come to them and you're you're or even if it's virtually, you, you're asking them questions, extracting kind of this if you want to call it human data, right? Or mm-hmm. um, yeah. it's part of it anecdotal. At what point does is there a concern that maybe there's not as much openness around some of this, right? So there, yeah. you come to it. You, you're an outside party. You're coming to an organization, and maybe maybe there's a group of people that don't want to share some of the some of the warts, right? How do you how do you ensure that you get that comprehensive view of everything? Um, great question. Um, we go through a process where we um, we fatigue the uh, participant very quickly. You wear them out. <laughs> we wear them down, and you know it's having having spent um, God hundreds of engagements with public sector clients in a room. You know the questions, relatively speaking, to understanding the feasible uh, nature of readiness are fundamentally all the same. And you just you're just simply as an interviewer when you're doing it in person, you're simply guiding that process based on you know the data that you need to collect. And so what we in essence did is we took those. 10,000, 12,000 questions that you typically, permutations of which you can ask, and we consolidated them into a model where then an engine virtually connects the dots. And so as somebody is being interviewed, we don't call it a a survey, it's 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 a dynamic interview. As they're answering the interview questions, you know, the you know, we're adapting the next set of questions based on the previous answers for that individual, but also the previous answers for other individuals. And so it, it's, you know, it's like that, that school of fish that moves together or those flock of birds that move together. We're shaping the outcome of that data into the engine, the, the, the quantifying engine to shape the questions and really ferret out that information. So what we do is we initially wear the the interviewer down or the interviewee down, um, and they start to lose track and they start and they stop trying to game it and they start simply answering honestly because they've lost track of where they are. Um, as well as that the questions are very indirect, right? So you don't go to somebody and say, how would you rate your readiness? One to five. I mean, you know, that, that, yeah. <laughs> that produces nothing, right? So yeah, it's a very indirect question model. So taking that, if you want to call it kind of the, the algorithm or the, the theory, taking that into consideration, you've obviously worked with, with numerous organizations doing this. And I, I want to kind of pull this into practicality now and mm-hmm. get your, 
get your thoughts here. One of the things that we learned during the pandemic is that governments have to adapt for better decision-making to execute their ideas if they want to keep up with the pace of whether it's citizen expectation, maintaining um, employee readiness, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's accelerated at this insane pace. What are some of the ways you think that they can do that? They can adapt that better decision-making to execute on their ideas, to try and keep up with, with the standard that's been set now. Really, I think where it helps the most is in understanding where the misalignments are before you engage life cycle. If you ask any project manager, product manager, you know, what really their job is, regardless of whether they're in public sector or private sector, you know, (laughs) they'll tell you that their job is mostly an exercise in damage control. And from day one. And what, what we want our customers to be able to aspire to is that there is more opportunity ahead of them uh, rather than just doing damage control. And so for the public sector practice, especially, you know, the biggest challenge is that you have this misalignment right now between, you know, a constituency that is expecting immediate response to just about anything and everything right now, because the the 2020 crisis implanted this permanent expectation that government will rise to the occasion and meet the demand. The, The days of going back to a methodical paced process for consideration, funding, you know, procurement, implementation, you know, that's that's really not tolerated anymore, especially politically. And what public sector departments need to be able to do is adapt to that need very quickly. Um, and and so in the decision making process, you have to be able to root out where are the misalignments, correcting them, so that when you go to execution, one your risk is nominal to nothing that you are uh, accelerated to market, that you don't have to go back and rework uh, most anything. I mean, you know, there's a simple data point out there that 50% of all code has to be reworked on any given project. That's just not tolerable anymore. Uh, the, the expectations are too high and the, in, in the judgment comes way too fast. And so as a result, to be able to really meet the pace of expectation for constituents, to be able to really meet the demand of decision makers, it's really understanding how well you are aligned before you engage the life cycle. And once you can do that, our public sector clients have really shown the ability to accelerate to market. Um, and you know, to the book's title, they feel like they are winning more, right? They're getting more out there. So I'm curious now, so what should executives or leaders do to prepare for an implementation of this method? Is I mean, where they are right now, they're sitting here thinking, okay, well, it makes sense. We want to bridge the gap. We, we want to execute on our grid ideas, right? That's been a challenge. What can they do right now um, to start to prepare for an implementation of this? Well, really, it's it's changing a mindset that Number one, most projects that have been traditionally called IT projects are not IT projects. I mean, outside of something that IT came up with that they need to do to 
uh, effectively combat um, security uh, issues or network issues or, you know, things like of that nature, most projects have to be embraced as being business projects. That's number one, because they're not IT projects. And in understanding that they're business projects, it's also recognizing that most of the influence in terms of success outcome and speed to outcome is going to be from the alignment of the business to the initiative itself. And really beginning to take a hard look as, you know, can we, are we in the, in the moment right now able to do that? I think leadership has to really begin to show, you know, back to your original question, how do you get, you know, a younger generation to, to work with in this context, is there has to be a movement of much more empathy in the leadership style towards looking at the realistic timing around these things. You know, hiring a vendor to come in is no longer the insurance policy that it used to be uh, in the sense it's like, hey, look, we hired this great company. They came in. They didn't get it done. Oh, well, you know, it's there is that that level of buffer doesn't exist. And I think that's the hardest thing for public sector folks to deal with. Number one. Number two, you know, the reality is the majority of, of systems that are being uh, modernized out there in terms of a lot of the effort, technical effort that's going on are just really rudimentary data gathering systems. And frankly, that needs to be outsourced as a service so that most of the focus can go back to mission-centric government and mission-centric technology, meaning using data, not collecting it, right? So the, the value proposition needs to be shifted towards the whole uh, analysis component, right? The, the better business analytics, the better uh, forecasting, predictive modeling, machine learning, AI, all of those things that are now really more mission-driven, mission-centric government delivering more value, more speed to uh, constituent value. That can only be accomplished if you let go of having to, to build all of these systems. And so where readiness comes into the effect is that understanding, can you do the accelerated work? Do you have the understanding or the capacity to let go of the data gathering process? And if not, how are you going to procure that in a way that isn't going to take you three years to implement when you need the data in nine months? And further than that, how can you really more retrench and focus on advanced analytical capabilities rather than rudimentary data gathering capacity. You used a phrase in there that I think is important, um, talking about speed to outcomes. Um, I've said speed to value. And I, I think the exciting part is we're at a tipping point right now within government. And I think we've been at this point, even pre-pandemic over the past three, four, mm -hmm. five years, where yeah. government is shifting into a more outcomes-based. And you're right, they're not tolerating a, a long drawn out process anymore. You need to show right. value quickly as a vendor. And I think that's ultimately good for the citizen, the stakeholder, and, and hopefully we can leverage data to drive that forward. Alex, yeah. I, I really appreciate the time today. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the audience? Yeah. I mean, really the, the thing that we have to keep in mind is that, you know, government works more in the context of an infinite game, right? In the sense that you know, a, a while back, there was a there was a speaker who said that he attended both a, an Apple uh, annual conference and an executive retreat and a Microsoft executive retreat. 
and, and this was a while back, but at the Microsoft retreat, they focused most of their presentations on how they're going to defeat Apple. The Apple presentations by executives there focused on how are they going to make their customers' lives better. And so in translating that back into public sector, what, what I would offer for consideration for, for the listener is that government is an infinite game rather than that, that finite player moment, right? Finite being a game, you know, like a baseball game or a football game, right? We have rules and we have a score and we have an outcome. The infinite game is how are you going to continue to deliver enhanced constituent value over time? And that comes from adapting the principles of how am I measuring my execution capability? How am I defining my need? How am I replacing rudimentary things in my workflow, in my process, outsourcing those as a service, and then moving into core work, core mission-driven government work that allows me to deliver that, that value to the constituent in that infinite game of continuously enhancing their lives within the context of, of what that department does. So I would, I would offer that there be just some consideration in that, in that space. I think that's, that's a great way to end it. I, I never thought of it. Obviously, one of the things I do talk about is kind of how organizations do, uh, commercial organizations do kind of have that, that impetus, which is um, lower cost, obviously, but to retain customers. And government doesn't have the impetus no. to retain citizens that they just are their customers by default, but the impetus should be to delight those citizens. And like you said, it's, it's an infinite game. It's continuously evolving and it's on the government to drive that delight by continuing to innovate. Um, and it sounds like by leveraging data, especially using a readiness score like this, it's one way for them to get that speed to value that we were just talking about. Yeah, and delivering the innovation, right? Because I think, Correct. you know, I, I, I'm sure you've seen this too, is that, you know, public sector folks have really stepped up in a wonderful way of finding ways to innovate. But then they get stuck in 80s and 90s based processes. And policies. And policies, yes. And that's where they get stuck. And suddenly they have this, you know, new generation of innovation, new generation of thinking, meeting the demand, speed to market type attitude. And they're like, we can do so much. But then they're in this quagmire of, you know, legacy based policies that don't allow them to move forward. And so now how do you build that, that bridge? How do you, again, how do you remove the rudimentary stuff that really isn't creating a lot of value? It's actually more of a boat anchor than a driver and get that out of the shop and now reorient and focus on how do I, you know, in, in what I'd like to say, how do I start using data instead of focusing on collecting data? And that's where the value really starts to kick in. Couldn't agree more. Alex, thanks again for joining us today. Really enjoyed this conversation. Completely my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittistray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.